Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. Katie, I like to think of these as God-guided conversations because I don't really know what all we're going to talk about today, but I always get really excited. So I first met Katie about two years ago, I think, whenever um, I was working as a 2-4 and we did a workshop with Simply Grace. And little did I know that two years later, I was going to get to work with her at the Magdalene House. So she is now joining us. She's a new volunteer coordinator. So hopefully she'll get to get to know you guys very soon once all this COVID stuff settles down. And I'm very, very grateful to get to work beside her. And I'm grateful that uh, you guys now have the opportunity to get to know her. So Katie, if you just mind... um, Introducing yourself first, giving us a little bit of background to qualify. Sure. So my name is Katie. I am a recovered alcoholic. My sobriety date is 2017. So I guess what brought me here would be I started drinking and and using at a young age. And it seemed to me at the time that I was just doing it to fit in with with all the older kids I was hanging out with and all that stuff. And but it became real fun to me, you know. And I remember thinking, wow, this is how I want to feel like for the rest of my life. Um, It gave me that sense of ease and comfort that I didn't even know that I was searching for. Like I said, at a young age, 12, 13 years old. So it progressed pretty quickly for me. By the time I was in high school, I was definitely an alcoholic, but I didn't know it at the time, obviously. And so, you know, by the time I was 23, I ended up in rehab for the first time. And I didn't think that, well, I shouldn't say that. I knew I had a problem, but I would say that um, I didn't think it was as serious as everybody else did. So I remember being in treatment and this, this group came in and they brought a meeting and they, they were talking about, you know, the solution and the problem that it uh, lays out in the big book. And I was like, oh my God, you know, especially when they were talking about the problem, I was like, that's me. Like I can identify with that 100%, the allergy, the, the obsession of the mind, all of that stuff. It made so much sense to me, but I thought that, well, now I know, right? Like now I know what the deal is and I'll be able to control it. I'll be able to stop it before it gets that bad. So unfortunately that idea, that concept that I had in my head took me right back out the day I got out of treatment. And so for the next, I would say seven years, I was in and out of treatment centers, in and out. I went to nine treatment centers before I finally had my surrender moment. And so things progressed and got steadily worse, really, really bad. And by the end of it, you know, I was homeless and, um, had burned every single bridge. I'd lost every relationship. My husband was gone. My kids were gone. My family wanted nothing to do with me. I was broken. I was broken. And I had tried everything during that seven year period, right? Because I wasn't 
honestly, the God idea that you guys talked about scared me. And I thought I had this idea that like, I was too bad for God. Like I believed in something or had an idea. I would say I had an idea of a power greater than myself, but I didn't think that he would do for me. I thought I was too bad again. And so I was convinced I had this moral issue and that I was just a really crappy person. And so by the end of it, I was convinced that I was going to die a drunk and an addict and all of those things. So I didn't go to treatment the last time because I wanted to get sober. Like I really did not I went because I'd been kicked out of the place I was living again for the last time. My family had turned their backs on me. Thankfully it was the best thing they ever did looking back. But so I had nowhere to go and I was like, I'll just go to treatment and, um, I'll get some food and you know, they'll give me some good detox meds and I'll be able to sleep this off until I can figure something else out. Right. So what, what's cool is though, is God showed up, you know, and not that he hadn't been there all along, but I heard whatever it was I needed to hear. And I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I wish I could. Um, and I don't know if it was said to me before, but this time, like God gave me that brief moment of clarity and I was able to hear something. And so I got out and I got a sponsor and I did what, you know, I went to a sober living. And so that was not my idea either, <laughs> but again, they were going to, um, it's kind of funny. They were going to release me to, um, the women's shelter in downtown Fort Worth because I had nowhere to go by chance. I heard about this sober living. And so I got scholarship in, which was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And it's such a big part of my story because moving there, I saw girls who were like, just like me. And they told me they drank the way that I drank and they used the way that I used, but they hadn't done it in like 30 days or 60 days or whatever. And that blew my mind. Cause I was like, I couldn't go an hour or two without, you know, drinking or using. And so I was like, what are, what are your secrets? Tell me what you're doing. And it was pretty simple. They're like, well, you know, we're working some steps and we go to this meeting and like, here, let me help you find a sponsor. Um, and so that's kind of where I started and I jumped head in and I did the work, you know, I mean, that's basically it. I did the work and I got connected to God and here I am three years later. That's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you. So for the newbies who haven't been here, I always come prepared with questions and well, and I always think of questions as we go along, but I like to open it up to y'all. Does anybody have a question? No. Okay. I do. All right. I just never know which one I want to start with is the problem. Okay. You said you had the, a surrender, a surrender moment. What do you, what did that happen in treatment? Um, I think it was a, like a, a cumulative thing over a period. I don't, I can't tell you the exact moment, but I know looking back, it was a surrender. When I was in it, it just felt kind of like giving up, you know, I was giving up again. I, you know, I was hopeless and, and helpless. And I decided that there was nothing else I could do because I tried therapy. I tried, like I said, treatment nine times. Treatment did not work for me. I'd gone to the IOPs. I'd gone, I'd done meditation classes. I tried doing it for my kids. I tried doing it for my husband. I tried the job. I tried medication, all of those things. Right. And so I had no more options and I was just kind of laid down at my feet. It was more of like a, I would say my willingness had to like kind of coincide with the desperation, right? Like you hear in the rooms. Um, and that was true for me. It all had to like divinely happen. <laughs> I, get what, I get what you're saying for sure. Yeah. So you, you have a husband 
who is also in the program. Yes. So you also drink and use with. Oh yeah. Do you have, like, I guess you have experience with trying to get sober with someone, relapsing with someone. Can you share your experience for people who are in relationships with others in the rooms and who have drank with their significant others? And can you just share your experience with that working two separate programs? Absolutely. So we tried for six years to do it together. And what I mean by that is we'd go to meetings together and we'd sit next to each other and we would, we'd leave and we'd talk trash about everybody in the meeting and be so judgmental and all of those things, right? Like, cause we thought we were so much better than everybody else and we were different and you know, we were soulmates and we were going to do this thing together and, and all of that. But, but what's tricky is we were so toxically intertwined in our disease because what I've learned is my disease wants to kill you as much as your disease wants to kill me right and so and also like water seeks its own level and so unfortunately I would get sober right I'd have a three or four days or whatever and I'd be like super gung-ho I'm gonna do it this time and he would be like babe let's just go go out tonight and drink one time. We'll just do it one time and it'll be fine. You know, we deserve it. Let's celebrate. It's Friday night. And I'd be like, okay, you're right. Or, and then it'd be off, you know, or it'd be him. He'd be sober for a few days and I'd be restless, irritable, discontent. And I'd bring home a bottle of crown or whatever it was. And not even meaning to mess with what he was doing, but like, it is what it is. And so we did that countless times, you guys in and out, in and out, in and out. And what had to happen for us is we had to be completely separated. And that's the truth. And so when I went into treatment this last time, my husband was sober. We were not living together because our, you know, it was the whole thing, but he was sober. He was dry. I would say two weeks into my trip into treatment, you know, he disappeared and he was out. So when I got out of treatment and I really believe God removed him for me because I wouldn't have been able to do it had I been so wrapped up in him and what was going on with him. And so, you know, he was back out. He disappeared. And so for the first two months of my sobriety, I hadn't, I didn't know where he was. I hadn't, I didn't do anything to try to contact him. And then one day he popped back into my life and he was actively using, um, and drinking. And I told him, you know, I can't, I can't do it. And again, that, like that strength did not come from within me. I had a team of girls, um, supportive women around me, supporting me because it was hard. I cried every night. I knew I was going to get a call that he was dead and I was preparing myself for it, but I had to, I had to let him go. What happened was about six months later, I got a phone call that he was in treatment and he, you know, he was asking for help. And I said, I will send you the number to a sober living and a couple of guys I know who sponsor, but that's about it right now, you know? And so that's what I did. And he, fortunately, God showed up for him too. And he got connected and he, he's doing amazing. He's been sober now two years. And so I have about a year more than him. And so anytime we argue, I'm always like, don't worry, it'll make sense in about a year. <laughs> so anyway, he's doing great and I'm doing great. And, um, but again, I had to, he had to be removed. He had to be removed and the same for him. He deserved that same opportunity to get sober and to figure his, his stuff out just like I had. And so today the way it looks is we don't, he does his thing. Um, and we, you know, he sponsors dudes and he, um, he has his own 
prayer and meditation routine and all that stuff. And, and, you know, of course we talk at times about it, but we don't, you know, I struggled in the beginning with trying to sponsor him, <laughs> you know, but my sponsor used to tell me, Katie, you're not his sponsor. You need to calm down. And so it's just been a learning experience, you know, but we try to keep it separate because that's the only way it's going to work. Yes, I can <laughs> relate. Cause you know, I like to think that since I'm in the program, like I definitely know what he should be doing. Right. But, but the truth is like, I don't know. Right. I don't know his God. Yeah. I don't know what, his, how big his God is and what, what plan he has in store for him. And I have to stay out of the way. Yeah. And I will say one more thing because we actively use together, he can't hear certain things from me and I can't hear certain things from him. It's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but yeah. Gina, you have a question? Yeah. Hey, um, you, you know, this whole thing about your husband or your family kind of being not in your life anymore because of this disease. I'm still struggling with my son. It's been mm -hmm. four years this month that he hasn't contacted me and I've tried to contact him twice and no response. And my sponsor says at this point, you know, he knows where I live. Well, or, you know, my family, he disowned my whole family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as alcoholics, we keep asking people till they say what we want to hear. <laughs> but um, I'm not doing that. But just some more coping skills, because I feel like, okay, I'm his mom. I should still at least send him cards, tell him I love him, mm -hmm. you know. But she says, leave it alone, leave it to God. Mm -hmm. I guess I just need more chills on what to do. I, I feel really bad about not just sending some kind of something to say, I love you, even though he's not ready to have a relationship. I would say that's the key. What you just said, he's not ready. Yeah. So, you know, who are we to push that on somebody? Cause again, you have to let him have his experience around it. And unfortunately, like we caused so much damage and so much hurt to the people around us. Because what's crazy about, you know, we're numbed out the whole time. We don't, right. I mean, even though it hurts and, it, and we struggle and, and like we feel shame and guilt, they're a front and center for all of it. You know, there are people in my, who are in my life who are not today, um, who are still not ready to have anything to do with me. And I just have to know that I, you know, as far as um, like I reached out and I did my part. And so I would say like your son knows that when the time is right, he knows where to find you. Um, and I, and so it's like, you just have to keep showing up and doing God's work. And when the, when it's time, you'll know, you know, yeah. and, um, I'm rationalizing, maybe I'm not rationalizing, but it, it's a blessing. He isn't in my, it hasn't been in my life because I've had, I'm chronic relapser. I just would have, I would have, I mean, this, that to me, I can look in hindsight because of this program that that's a God deal mm -hmm. that it would only hurt him more. Yeah. And God's preparing him. God's preparing me. So that's a boost that I have that God's going, Gina, this relationship, it, it, you're not ready for it, much less yeah. what it would do to him again. So, right. okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I do want to um, kind of piggyback off of Regina's question because I know I talked to your former sponsor now, who you all know, Chloe. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, and so I got the inside scoop. And it sounds like you have made some really, um, I guess I wouldn't 
say tough amends, powerful amends maybe around your children. And I know that we have lots of moms who are either on here or who are going to be listening to this. And that is always a question that I get. Um, Do you mind sharing your experience? I'm thinking of two different stories, but we'll see what you say. Okay. (laughs) So which one do I want to start with? Okay. So I have a 16 year old son and unfortunately like I I used and drank when I was pregnant with him at that point you know it wasn't I mean it was obviously a problem right because I was pregnant and I shouldn't be drinking um but it wasn't like an everyday thing it was still very under my control if you will say so throughout his life he got to see me in all of my chaos and all of my glory you know but he lived with me for the first um eight years then when things started to get really bad we lost custody of my stepdaughter to her mother and then my son went to live with my grandparents and so my mom is an alcoholic also and was gone my whole life and so i always said i would never do that to my kids but unfortunately that's the way that it worked out and so my son got to see front and center, the worst part of everything by the end of it, you know, I'd go to jail or rehab quite often. And in the beginning, my family always told him, Oh, mommy's at school. Mommy's sick. She's at the hospital or or whatever. But they got so fed up, fed up of it towards the end that, you know, they were just telling him the truth. Your mom's on a run again. Um, She's using drugs. She's out partying, all these things. You know, when I was able to get back into the house, I was stealing his video games right in front of him to go pawn. You know, I just wasn't, wasn't present at all or the mother that he deserved. So when I got sober and I moved into this sober living, which was the best thing for everybody for me to get far away from him. Cause by the end of it, he would, I'd walk into a room and he'd turn his head. He wanted nothing to do with me. Wouldn't even look me in the eye. So I was able to, after about, I think it was maybe six months or so sober. Well, very slowly, I will say that I was able to have phone conversations with him. And then I was able to stay the night every once in a while. And so slowly it started to rebuild our relationship. But there was a program called Betty Ford's Five Star Kids, which unfortunately is no longer a thing. Uh, But I got to put him in that program and it really explained the disease of addiction to children. I mean, he was 13 or so, but he was still a kid. And that how it's not their fault because so many kids think that it's something that they did, you know, but because of that, the last day of that program, he got to write me a letter and sit in front of me and read it and um, tell me exactly how he felt about it. And basically what he said was he was scared. He was just scared. So through that, you know, with the support of the counselors and the therapists there, I was able to make an amends and sit across from him and tell him that it wasn't his fault and that I was very sick and the ways that I planned to make it right. And so um, because of that experience, I truly believe, I mean, he, my kid and I are inseparable today. So of course there's a lot of growth. And the thing is, is I keep an open line of communication. He asks me about it all the time. Mom, remember when you did this? Why did you do that? And, I, and I'm just honest and we talk about it. And so he's also very much a part of my recovery today. He knows 
he, you know, I used to drag him to meetings with me, but he can't stand it. Um, but he knows like if I'm talking to my sponsor or if I'm on the phone with the sponsee, um, like he, he understands why. And, you know, sometimes he'll say, don't you need to go to a meeting tonight? <laughs> so that's been a huge blessing. But I think the biggest one, um, not that that one wasn't powerful and amazing, but towards the end of my addiction, I, um, I'm trying to keep this condensed because it could be so long and drawn out. My husband and I had kind of separated. You know, he was homeless over here and I was homeless over there. It had been about a year and I met this other guy. I guess you could call, we kind of got in a relationship, whatever the case, but I, I ended up getting pregnant. Um, and this was in 2015. So I got pregnant, didn't have a plan, didn't know what I was going to do. And so I didn't do anything. I continued to drink every day all day um i was using all of the things um without any regard to this tiny little life that was growing inside me um so the guy that i was with ended up going to getting arrested and going to prison so again i found myself homeless and i had nowhere to go so i called the family back up and they let me come back in and from there i found a place called gladney which is an adoption agency right but they had a maternity ward for pregnant mothers. If you didn't have anywhere to go, you could stay there. Um, and it was amazing. It was such a blessing because, I mean, this was a really nice place. They had great staff. They had therapists on staff. They had, you know, they, they just supported you and loved you in any way that you needed and offered you every chance to succeed. They'd pay for your school. Uh, they would take you to meetings or, or anything that you needed. Just ask, right? So I moved into this place, but I wasn't able to stop as much as I wanted to. And I had all of these wonderful surroundings and every opportunity, like I said, to succeed, I couldn't stop. So I was sneaking in alcohol, I was sneaking in drugs, I was having people bring me stuff. They, would, they were randomly drug testing me and I was using another woman's urine to pass drug test, just, ugh, you name it, it was awful. Luckily, the baby was born, completely healthy, so beautiful. Um, and the family that I picked, again, these are those moments where like, left to my own devices, I should mess everything up. But that was out of my control and, I'm, and it, I made the best, most selfless decision I've ever made and that family, I helped make them a family um, and they're amazing. So anyway, I would like to say that after he was born, I, you know, I had a reality check and was like, wow, I need to get sober. Uh, I didn't. And so again, I kept going, kept going, kept going. And so it was an open adoption, meaning they wanted me to have as much contact as, as I could have with him. Um, his name is Phoenix. Are you looking for a way to give back and get involved with the Magdalene House? No work is too small and our dedicated volunteers serve as a valuable resource to our organization we couldn't help alcoholic women and their families without the priceless services they provide. We provide opportunities for all, as well as opportunities strictly for women in recovery. To get started, please visit our website at magdalenhouse.org volunteers and click on new volunteer sign up. And again, they're the greatest family. Um, they live in New Jersey and they kept reaching out to me over and over and over for 
months and months and months. But because I was so full of shame and guilt and so much in my disease that I couldn't, I just ignored them, right? And so about a year, I was about a year sober and I knew I needed to make an amends. There were several amends in that story that needed to be made, right? Um, to Phoenix, to his family, and to the adoption agency. God, I was terrified. Because again, I'm carrying around, can you imagine the shame and guilt? I mean, I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. I can't be the only one. Um, but I knew I had a sponsor who was just amazing and kept telling me, you know, if you only knew the freedom on the other side of it, just keep going. You know, God's big enough. So I reached out to them and I wrote them a letter um, and they responded back. I put my number in the, in the letter and they called um, the day they got it. And, you know, it, I had made something into something. It was not, um, it was, they were just so excited and so happy to hear me and that I was doing well because they had known about my struggles and my issues. And so because of that, like I've been able to build this relationship that I never even imagined was possible. They, we text every day sometimes. Um, and Phoenix calls me mama Katie, which is so cute. And you know, I got to, they came to visit because they live in New Jersey. They came to visit back in January, um, on his third birthday. And so, um, that's been amazing. That's been an experience. Um, I told my son, Cameron, my 16 year old, he didn't even know I got to tell him about it. And so he got to meet his little brother. So there's that part of it. Um, that was super amazing. But the, I think the coolest part is I, I got to go back to that adoption agency and I was terrified, like I said, and I walked in and I said, I told him who I was and I asked to speak to somebody who had worked on the maternity dorm. And so they brought this gentleman out who I didn't recognize, but, um, you know, and he was so confused. He was like, what is this about? <laughs> but I got to sit across from him and tell him, admit to him all of the things that I did when I was living there, you know, and I had stolen a bunch of stuff when I left. And I said to him, you know, like I did not make use of the opportunities you afforded me and I was using and I was, and I'm so sorry that I, you know, all of these things. And so he burst into tears at the end of it and was just crying. I mean, this huge, six foot five guy he's crying and he's like you know we see so many women come through here with stories exactly like yours um you know and i've never seen anybody come back that's been sober never and he was so he was by the end of it he was thanking me for coming in there and showing him that like recovery is possible and that opened up the door for me to be able to maybe go back in and help some one of those women you know so um but I'll tell you, so I walked out of that uh, adoption agency. Internally, I was searching for that feeling, that heavy, icky, whatever it was that I'd been walking around with for years, and it was gone. Like, like that, it was gone. And I remember calling my sponsor just in tears because I didn't believe it could happen, you know? I thought this was something I was going to have to live with and feel shame and guilt around for the rest of my life. And, it, and today, like, it's not, you know? And I get to use, I've used that experience with so many other girls to be able to help them and tell them that, like, look, this gets better and, and you can get, get over it and get through it. So was that the, was that what you were talking about? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I do want to um, also ask, too, when you were making the amends to your son mm -hmm. and you said that you went in with what you were going to do to make it right. 
what were some of those things that you told him you were going to do to make it right? Basically, you know, and then I'm going to just continue. I'll, I'll always be here. Cause that's something that he struggled with for so long. Cause I'd be so, I'd take off for six months at a time. Um, you know, so I told him that I was going to be the mother that he deserved, but he could come to me anytime he needed help or guidance or support. And then I was going to continue to work on, you know, myself to be, to become the best mother I can be for him. I told him I would try, try my best to never be dishonest to him again, which is hard to say, I'll never lie to you again. Cause I'm human and I, and I hope that I don't, but you know, and I told him that I would continue to keep, like I said, an open line of communication. Anytime he had any questions or wanted to talk, that, you know, we could. So, and I do. I show up for that kid. You know, I have to keep my promise to him. Thank you so much. So, you live with your grandparents? You take care of them? Mm-hmm. Is that part of an amends? Or how did you end up doing doing that? So... My grandparents raised me. My parents weren't around. And so they were mom and dad, I would say. And then, you know, like I had kind of said earlier, when I was going through all my stuff, I pretty much dumped my kid on them and they raised my son. Fast forward to when I was about 18 months sober, I was still living in the sober living. um, And my grandparents are quite old. And unfortunately, they're not in the best health. They both got really sick at the same time and were hospitalized at the same time. So it just worked out that I had to come, I had to rush and move back in to be here for my, for my kid and for them. And so it's just kind of worked out that way that I feel like, so I don't like the term living amends because I feel like, yes, there is such a thing as a living amends personally for me, but you have to make the face to face. Like you don't just get to, be like, oh, I'm making a living amends. No, you have to sit face-to-face across from somebody and make the amends, which I did do. They were the first people that I um, made an amends to. However, I drained them, robbed them, I would say, of their peace of mind for years. Kept them up at night crying. I've robbed them financially of everything. And so for me to be the person today that they depend on and count on the most says a lot about what God can do. Because today, like, I, I give them peace of mind just being here. You know, I don't, I do physically take care of them because they're quite ill. But um, just me being home and knowing that they're not alone. My grandma has told me so many times how she's able to breathe and rest and know that everything's going to be okay. You know, if my grandpa were to fall, she doesn't have to call 911. I can help him. Those kind of things. And it's a blessing. And it's a struggle. But it's also a blessing. Because I, you know, I I missed out so much time with them that I'm just grateful and thankful to be able to spend whatever time I do have left with them, helping them and making sure that they're taking care of the way they took care of me for so many years and my son. Yeah. I love how you're talking, like, because we know, well, sometimes we're in delusion about it, but um, if we work the steps, we should know how our alcoholism, like how we are like a tornado roaring through the lives of others, right? But as you're, as you're talking, I just keep thinking about like how, like how like God doesn't only like help us, like he also helps heal the people that we destroyed. Yeah. And so I just think that you're such a living 
testament to that and like a demonstration of what God can do mm-hmm. when we work this program. And does anybody have a question? Okay. So obviously, well, for me, right, like I'm thinking the only way that we can go from that to how you were in, in your alcoholism and your addiction to how you are now and, and everything has to be God, right? Yeah. Um, how, how would you explain your relationship with God and how do you continue to seek and grow that relationship? How do you explain your relationship with God? That's tough. I would say it's, it's an awareness. Before I had, I would, like I said, I had an idea of what God was. I didn't have a relationship or a connection um, to that power. Having worked the steps and had real spiritual experiences I know God today through experience, which is something completely different and foreign to me when I first got sober. But it's true. I've experienced um, that power. I've felt it. I've seen it in other people. It's sometimes it's just a little voice, you know? It's just a little voice that's not me. (laughs) That's telling me the opposite of what I want to do, you know? I try to, I say I try. I try to trust and rely on God and everything that I do, you know, it's a struggle and it's definitely, um, I think something that you learn and practice your entire life and you just hopefully get better at it. But today there's no doubt in my mind of the power of God, no doubt in my mind. It's whether or not I am going to give up control and have another surrender around whatever it is that I'm struggling with. If I let God come in and take care of it, you know, Um, I would say the way that I strengthen and grow that relationship is trying my hardest to be open-minded, taking the suggestion of those people around me whom I trust and I I believe are connected to God. I work on different ways of, of prayer and meditation. I work with another alcoholic. That's the best way that I've heard. I've heard it said, um, the best way to connect to God is to help somebody else connect to God, you know? I just try to, I just try to stay awake and open and aware to the stuff happening around me. It's easier when you're in gratitude to see the, um, the power and the miracles happening. So does anyone have a question? Yes, Crystal. So speaking on that about helping others, um, I'm new to being able to be, to sponsor. And so I just want to know if you have any advice on when you're first working with a sponsee for the first time, because I am terrified of (laughs) holding somebody else's sobriety, you know, um, or being, you know, being a part of it. I'm excited, but I'm also, you know, worried. And then also to piggyback off that, how have you transformed that 12 step work into the position you're in now with Maggie? Okay, so on your first point, I would say you're not holding anybody's sobriety because you're not that powerful. You got to remember that. Like your job as a sponsor is to guide somebody to God through the 12 steps. And so, yeah, it's a little nerve wracking in the beginning because you want to do a good job and you want to act like you know everything and all of that stuff. Well, like I, (laughs) I had to experiment with the ways that I sponsored for a long time. But really the truth is it's in the book. The directions are the book. And so 
you just follow that. When it says to ask, you ask. When it says to kneel, you kneel or whatever, you know, just when it gives you instructions, that's what you do. So it can be quite um, simple of a thing that we make into like a bigger, tougher job than it is. And then the 12 step work, I would say I try not to make that into the job that I have, if that makes sense. Even though Maggie's is based on 12 step principles um, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's, it's hard, but I try to keep them separate because my recovery is one thing. My program is one thing. My job is another. And if I ever think that my job is my program and that it counts toward my spiritual experiences, I, I might be in trouble. Because the thing is, I, you know, Maggie's, as much as I love and believe in the mission and all of those things, like I still get, that's my job. I get paid to do that, which is amazing that I get paid to help people and, and to do what I love. And I'm so blessed and so grateful. But 12-step work is completely different. So 12-step work is living those principles in all aspects of my life, with my home, my family, um, how I show up at work, yes, um, with strangers in traffic, and then carrying the message to the still-suffering alcoholic, which is, you know, sponsorship and um, all of that good stuff. So has it benefited me and been able to um, help me do better at my job? I would say yes, but it's, it's different. Does that make sense? Did I explain that correctly? <laughs> okay. Anybody else? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. So you were talking about, you know, with your husband, he was still going through treatment whenever you were sober and using while you were sober. And I feel like one of my amends that I have to make is with my brother, but he, he still drinks a lot. He actually, like he's, he deals drugs <laughs> and he has had three DWIs and he's got, you know, he's has felony record things pending. So I don't know. I know that I've gotten drunk and I've called him and yelled at him and been upset about things that he's done. That's hurt us in the, in my family. Mm. But I, you know, I was drinking at the time and I was very harsh with him and I know that I need to apologize for that. But I also don't know if right now is the best time for me to reach out to someone that I know is a toxic relationship for me because he is still in that world and I'm trying to stay away from it. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm just looking for some guidance or advice on should I just kind of hold that off for a little bit or just give him a call and leave it at just like a phone call and say, I just wanted to say sorry, but I don't necessarily want to be like hanging out right now. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I completely understand the anxiety and stuff around that because I had, um, I had a really tough amends I had to make to, uh, or I got to make, I should say to that guy that I told you guys about that I got pregnant and he went off to prison. I knew there was an amends there, right? I knew it. And a lot of people around me, as much as they were well-intentioned, were like, stay away. No, he's bad news. Never, ever, 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 ever think about him again, you know? And I know that-, that My husband, too, he's like, I don't want our kids around him. I don't want you to talk to him. Like, it, he, you know, I know yeah. he's coming from a good place, but yeah, he's the same way. Like, Well, the thing is, like- it's between you and God, 
I would say. And so I, I will say that when I was early on in my recovery journey and, and in my sobriety, it, it was not a good idea because I wasn't, I don't want to, I don't want to say I wasn't in a good place because I was in a good place and I was safe and protected. I just needed some time away and I needed some clarity around what exactly I was making an amends for because I just knew it was something like I said, but I didn't know what it was. It took a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer, a lot of consulting with my sponsor about that. And I finally went about six months ago and made an amends to this guy and he was actively high. He showed up, pupils all dilated, um, telling me about, you know, how cool he is for the, you know, how much money he spends on the drugs and all this stuff. Right. However, I didn't go alone. I had a, I had a girlfriend who was in recovery with me, uh, waiting in the car around the corner. So that's something I would suggest. Um, and, but the cool thing is, is you're allowed to set boundaries with people like that because what it was is I knew it was time because I couldn't sh stop the voice, which turned out to be the voice of God, but it was like, rah, 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 and I couldn't get this guy off my mind and not in like a, a way like that, but it was like this, it was just sitting heavy on me. And so I knew it was time. Was I scared and terrified? Absolutely. That was probably the, the hardest for me to to, to get my feet to walk from the car to the place I was meeting him. Um, but I did it because I like God provided that opportunity for me and I couldn't deny it anymore. Um, and so I went, I made the amends. And what I was saying about the setting the boundaries is, uh, you know, he said to me, don't block me on Facebook. You know, let me come get a tattoo from me. I'm doing tattoos out of my living room, you know, oh, gosh. <laughs> and I was able to, you know, set that boundary at a certain point of like, you know, no, that's not okay. You know? So, um, I would say pray your butt off about it. And when the time comes, you'll, you'll know, talk to your sponsor. All of that. I think you're right though. And the fact that I think right now, cause it's so early, maybe mm -hmm. I should just hold off until I feel a little bit stronger in my sobriety and like, yeah, because right now it's very, it's, I'm not going to say it's flimsy, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty early on. So and the other thing too, is I went to my husband and I said, Hey, I have this amends to make. Um, I have to make this amends. And I know it was hard for him because of the situation and who I was going to make an amends to. But he was, he, that's one thing like he, cause he's in recovery himself. He understands. He was like, go do it. You know? Um, yeah. Of course, he was like, call me as soon as you leave. <laughs> but, um, and it worked out. So don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't go make an amends to somebody who's still actively using or drinking because God's big enough. Yeah. For sure. Ah, thank, thank you. you so much for that, Katie. It just, there's, there's like this amends that in the early, and whenever I first got sober, my sponsor was like, the only amends you make to that man is you never talk to him again. And, but yeah. it's like you said, like that voice of God, like, I think if I would have went and made that amends when I first got sober, like 30 days sober, no, uh -huh. but like God has continued to put that man on mm -hmm. my heart. And now as much as it's going to be freaking hard, you know, as much as I really don't want to, it's like God tells you when the time is right. Um, yeah. I'm grateful that that first sponsor was like, no, mm -hmm. but now I have a sponsor that's like, yes, you yeah. know, um, yeah. because it's just, I don't know, God, God will let you know. So I'm really so happy that you said that. Well, we're getting to the top of 
the hour. Does anybody have a question before I ask the final questions? All right, I just wanna say that this has been great. Um, and if y'all are liking this talk about amends, Chloe's gonna be on Monday morning at nine to do a workshop on steps eight and nine. So I, I first wanna ask, did you ever imagine your life the way that it is today? No, of course not. I mean, I couldn't see past the next few hours, you know, to think of a future was scary, you know, cause I didn't, um, the way that I was living my life, I didn't want to imagine what the future looked like. And today it's like, God, infinitely more beautiful than I ever could have even dreamed or asked. If I had told you at 30 days sober, what I wanted my life to look like, at three years, I would have sold myself short because I would have told you, I want to be able to talk to my son on the phone. I want to wait tables because that's like really good money. And it is. I want to maybe have a car, those kind of things, right? My God, I would have sold myself short because it doesn't even, those material things like don't even matter. And like I told you, the relationship that I have with my kid today and with my stepdaughter. You guys, I didn't see my stepdaughter for seven years. Today, we're like this. I get to hang out with her. She's my, my husband has custody of her again. Like, it's just, I, I didn't even get to get into that. But things that, like, I never thought could happen. Um, just, for example, like, me being allowed in my grandparents' house, I didn't think was ever going to happen. And here I am, like, I get to... Um, take care of them on a daily basis. And so, but the thing that the coolest part about it is the peace of mind and the freedom and the fact that I don't wake up every morning in a panic. I didn't even know that that was happening until it wasn't happening anymore. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then my final question, which I just want to thank you again so much for being here with us today. I didn't, I also forgot to mention too, that these are optional unless you're in your first week. So the women who are here, we're not in their first week, are here because they they want to be here. Oh, um, I think it's so cool. So just really thank you so much. Um, my final question is, if you could leave us with one takeaway, one of those things that was like, if you don't hear anything I say, hear this for women who are getting sober, staying sober, what would that takeaway be? Oh, man. How do you sum it down into one thing? Um, I would say for sure, keep showing up. When you don't feel like it, show up. When you think that you already know what everyone's talking about, show up and listen anyway. Push through and keep doing it because again, something my sponsor taught me very early on is you have no idea the miracle waiting on the other side of it. And that goes for each and every single step. That goes for the whole thing in general. It goes for every situation that you're in that's tough. Just keep showing up, I would say. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun, you guys. Y'all have a wonderful, wonderful day. And if you guys need me, call me. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. 
We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. Thank you.